is the 1920th episode and we have a fantastic guest our associate producer kathleen cunningham murphy murphy cunningham <laughs> kathleen <laughs> she has multiple cats i do yeah I welcome thank you i'm welcome. excited yeah i mean so cats have, she's obviously got her bartending skills was a bartender is occasionally a bartender has trained her husband on properly pouring a drink. Wow. Uh, I've seen her stop a bartender at an Irish bar for pouring a Guinness improperly. It's a it's a deal, and apparently I'm not the only person who has done that in their life. Y- yeah, but I mean, it's a it's a lifestyle. I think we could it say is. for you. Yeah. Um, well, I think yeah. because I mean, my dad was a bartender, and a lot of people in, on his side of the family work in higher end bartending or did work in higher end bartending. And so it's just something I'm like, no, this is not just like, let's do shots and get crazy. Like you respect what this is. Yeah. It's an art. I respect that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, welcome Kat. We're so excited to have you on our 1920s episode. So for our listeners across the globe, because we're in multiple countries now. Yes. Uh, Kat has been behind the scenes helping us out with photos, cocktail recommendations, sources, maybe an original song, maybe not an original song. We're not quite sure yet. So we're working on that, which will be a fun update. So she's also a fan of the 1920. I, I am just, I mean, the glitz and the glam of it. Yeah, it was the theme of our wedding. To an extent. Yeah. Kat's not delusional about what the 1920s were. No. She's like, it was just like that Leonardo DiCaprio film. The one that's so historically perfect. All right. Well, this is our third and potentially final been in the 20s episode because I don't think we're going to do 2020 since 2020 is an asshole. So. It is, but people are apparently drinking a lot. That's true. And gin is still on the rise as, a, as the drink of choice. That being said, Kat, tell us your gin founding story. Um, so I think it was something that I was intimidated of when I was younger. And I, this is the most ridiculous story in the world. Um, we were in college and we were at a bar in Indianapolis called The Colonial, which... <laughs> most glorious <laughs> bar on the South Side. Really, just, I mean, I made Roscoe like there. Broken Dreams, and that's my favorite it's, bar. It's a place we went to in college, mm-hmm. and they had Christmas decorations up year-round. But our roommate's boyfriend had a gin and tonic and was like, it tastes like Christmas trees. You have to try this. And I was like, Christmas trees are amazing. Um, and so I really liked gin and tonic for a while. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to explore it a little bit more after watching Mad Men because, like, John Hamm and January Jones just make anything look amazing and glamorous and sexy. Sure. Like I watched Mad Men and I was like, I should start smoking. Wait, no, no, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> Walk that back. Walk that back. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, knowing the colonial is probably at best beef eaters. So I feel like that's like a harsh introduction and you made you made the journey yeah. there, Kat. Yeah. Yeah. So what I sent you guys a couple cocktails that are 1920s themed and you tried them or are trying them. What yes. what do you guys have? I have two. 
I have, because I couldn't resist and I, I stopped myself. I didn't make a third one. <laughs> <laughs> I have a South Side, which I love that you gave me since, you know, I know what you were doing there, South Side of Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. um, and then I made a white lady. And the third one that I didn't make is where it included the egg whites. I didn't make that one. Yeah, the white lady controversy. We'll get into that a little bit later. But there's kind of some weirdness around that. And also, people get weird about eggs and their cocktails. But I think they're lovely. But I respect people that aren't throwing raw eggs around. Like me. I prefer aquafaba. Yeah. So did you like the South Side and the white lady cat? Yeah. Walk us through it, Kat. I love the South Side because it has mint. And I feel like any cocktail that has mint in it, it's just, it's really refreshing, right? Like, I think of like mojitos and stuff like that. I also like herbs and things in drinks. I love like rosemary or basil thrown into a drink. I think it just gives it. And so it has that, it has lime juice. So it's, it's sweet enough that it balances with the gin really well. So I would definitely plug it for summer. And then the white lady is it's also pretty citrusy but it it doesn't have the mint but it's really good and the color is really really pretty on it too all right that's great and then ross what what do you have what are you well, i have the classic bee's knees but i in true fashion did not follow the recipe that hannah was kind enough to send me and that's fairly typical of <laughs> not my life. Not, not surprised, yeah. And I'm also not the best cocktail pourer because I learned to pour cocktails, again, at the Speedway, the Indianapolis 500. Apparently, that's not where you learn to pour cocktails. <laughs> you guys are just showcasing the best Indianapolis has to offer. <laughs> the Colonial and the Speedway. I love it. Hey, the Speedway is amazing, Okay. This was at a this was at an OGPA tournament though. I didn't even put my top pours on. I straight up had the jigger and I measured every single thing. I like went through all of our jiggers to make sure that my pours were perfect. So, <laughs> this is the difference between Ross and Kat. And I love it. I love you guys so much. Good. So I use what I had on hand, which I think is, you know, like what probably happened in the 1920s and happening across the world today. So I have some delicious gin from New Holland uh, distillers. Also, you might know them as New Holland Brewers, but it is their Knickerbocker gin that has been seeped or distilled with blueberries from the, one of the founder's grandmother's farm. So it's quite delicious. Very, it's a little bit sweet though, so you could almost drink it straight. So then I added some honey that is also from Michigan from around the same area that is blueberry blossom honey. So that means that the hives, of course, were in fields of blueberry. And so that is the pollen. I don't know how honey happens, but the pollen situation. <laughs> there. And then I didn't have any lemons, so there's some lime in it, all stirred up into delicious. Hmm. Yeah, honey. do you like it? What do you think? Yeah, I like it. I don't think I emulsified the honey enough in the lime juice, though. Yeah, the honey is like. Lime right now. Are yeah, you supposed to stir it or do you shake it? Just because honey's so thick. Uh, you probably in real life shake it, but I don't, I don't have a cocktail shaker. I'm sending you one. <laughs> yeah, I'm also, like, let me look into the inventory. that I poured it yes, in the thought glasses? Just, I need to point that out. <laughs> For Ross's tiny hands. Can I just mm -hmm. also plug really fast that I made mine with, um, two vodkas that I found. Um, uh, one is called Still. Vod or, excuse vodka me. Vodka or Jit? Yes. What podcast are you on, Kathleen? 
I do. I know. Well, I do drink vodka too. I, <laughs> I drink anything. I'm a trans person. But um, no, not no, I made mine with um, still gin um, from from Austin. They do. They're like your podcast. They do. Gin, that was my cat. Sorry. They do gin and whiskey. And it's really great. They're actually making hand sanitizer right now as their production has slowed down. And then I made the white lady with something called Austin reserve. I had never heard of it before, but they put peppercorn in it. So it's a little spicier. Um, I have a burning question about the twenties. Can we jump in? Dig on me. Yeah. Okay. So I'm sorry if I'm getting on myself, but everybody, when they think of the 1920s, they think of bathtub gin, right? Yes. Okay. This is my burning, burning question. So bathtub gin obviously probably had other options, but was made in a bathtub, right? So I understand too that during the century, hygiene was kind of evolving. Did people just like not bathe or would they use like sponge bathe themselves and then the gin would have that, you know, um, extra flavor? (laughs) Well, okay. So there's a few different few different theories about why it's called bathtub gin. One Brian discussed in our first episode is basically bathtubs are a great way to hide a liquid because you expect water to be in there and gin is typically clearish. Also remember water at the time in a lot of homes is not clear. So if it's even kind of grayish or brownish, that's fine. Pre-tub, like pre-bath time, like it could have been really disgusting. Um, that's one option. I think that's like so-so. The second one is bathtub gin is called bathtub gin because the type of alcohol that was used was so caustic and so undrinkable that you had to top off half of a bottle with water. So like a bottle meaning a jug. We're not talking like a, a nice bottle. We're talking about jugs in like repurposed bottles. Yeah. Like what you so, see with the X's on them in the cartoons and stuff or the old Totally. Movies. Yeah. No, a coyote would have been like, ah! And like ran away from this. Mm-hmm. Um, so you couldn't fit those bottles in a sink. So you'd have to top them off in the tub, thus the bathtub. Okay. And then the third one that I think Dane Hucklebridge mentions in his bourbon book, which is like a fun little book to read. Everybody should check it out because it's just so like light and breezy, but also has some cool facts. Bathtubs are a great way to hold caustic chemicals that need to be mixed. So like some people are like, oh yeah, would like you would cure fruits and different things to ferment in your tub. Like, yes, that would take days. So potentially if somebody was doing that, you could like set aside like a week of no bathing, which is disgusting. <laughs> but a lot of... It was probably normal though. Kathleen's like, I work with middle schoolers. This is totally possible. <laughs> it's definitely possible. Very disgusting. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think a lot of it's more likely is the topping off of the water. Again, some people didn't have access to running water in their homes. Like my mom didn't have it in her childhood home. So like that's completely feasible that people were just holding liquid in a tub because it's the largest thing they had that was waterproof. But yeah, so no matter what, it's gross. It's just like what level of gross. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy, right? Did that answer your question? It did. Because I was just like, I don't know. I remember when I was much younger and I first heard of tub gin, I like pictured the house that I lived in when I was much younger on the east side of Indianapolis in Irvington and I just pictured the only bathroom that we had filled with alcohol and which is ridiculous (laughs) well yeah like yeah and we'll get into a little bit about like how people started making the alcohol but 
the idea of having like some of this alcohol, if you had it in your bathroom, like I would be afraid to walk in there with static. Like it's so flammable. It's like crazy industrial stuff. It's like the bathrooms in the eighties with all the hair spray. Totally. Yeah. No, no concern for the environment or your lungs. And they're just like going for it. Tell you more. Tell you. Okay. Well, here we'll do like kind of what's happening in the 1920s at this time. So let me switch to my notes for just a sec. The World War One ended. Correct. We've got, but we've got a bunch of other fun wars going on. We have a lot know? of things happening around the rise of industry. Yeah, and Ross, what's your, always your question? What's always your answer at this question? Colonialism. Yep, we got colonialism still. Globally. Heavy. Mm-hmm. Globally, yeah. Um, so yeah, we've got Turks War of Independence, unification of Saudi Arabia, U.S. is occupying multiple states in Central America. The Irish War of Independence. Yep. Yes. Also on a lighthearted note, we have the Russian Civil War, which, in, which ends in 1922. Mm-hmm. Something exciting happens for women. Yeah. What do you think about? You get the vote. Yeah. Wearing pants. Oh, yeah. And we're wearing pants. (laughs) I think, I, again, I'm ignorant and didn't realize that in 1918, women in the UK got the vote, but it wasn't until 1928 that they, that women under 30 can vote. Mm -hmm. So it was like, oh, yeah, women over 30, you're great. You're fine. Hannah, how do I know that? I know that from the BBC. And not from <laughs> nonfiction stories, from fictional stories like from I don't fictional know, Downton Abbey. As I'm waiting for Sherlock <laughs> to come back on, I substitute with Downton, even though it's not the same thing. We won't tell him. We won't tell Sherlock. Yeah, <laughs> he would ju- also judge yeah. me, like Sturgill. Yeah, Pilsen. Moffat has yeah a lot of thoughts. But did they have the same thought that America did, where it was like a woman was just an extension of whatever man she pretty much yeah whether it was of her father or then an extension of her husband it was one of the totally f things about this is the uk didn't just limit women like so women over 30 with that meet the property requirements so if you've got enough land you can vote totally and also only certain white men can vote so even if you've immigrated if you are a british citizen or you're a member of the commonwealth which so yeah. it took until 1928 for everybody to kind of get on the same page, which is, oh, my 20s are a crazy time, obviously very violent, but finally coming out of a lot of wars. So everybody's like, yeah, we're getting it together. And so then we've got, obviously, prohibition in the U.S., but I was doing my research. There were so many other places that had prohibition mm-hmm. for longer than us. Mm-hmm. Yes. This is obviously a failed experiment in the U.S. side for a lot of reasons. But like looking at my notes, I've got a whole slew of countries and a few of them that are just kind of sunny in the way they reacted to it. So like Nigeria tried to have prohibition from 1890 to 1939 because the missionaries were like, we shouldn't have alcohol here. Literally everybody else drinks booze. <laughs> Canada, 1918 to 1920. Also crazy to me. Wait, it only lasted two years. It was just a World War One thing. A lot of places it was a World War One thing. Iceland, 1915 to 1933, it started with World War I, workers' movements. Most of Scandinavia kind of has like a prohibition vibe at this time. Iceland doesn't get beer back until 1989. 19- <laughs> <laughs> Kat, Kat just like choked. I don't, I'm nothing, on air. The big one is like 
in my opinion, is Russia. So the czars banned alcohol consumption in 1914. Okay. And remember, at the time, Russians drink less booze than the French. They're not big drinkers. They mm-hmm. just binge drink vodka. And then when the Bolsheviks take over, they're like, yeah, this is still probably, this is a pretty good idea. Like nobody should be drinking that much vodka. So they keep it going until 1925. And throughout that time, you can only buy hard liquor in restaurants. But yeah, so that's what's going on around the world. Basically, everybody's trying prohibition. And like, we'll see. It'd be easier if everybody would be like, I'm going to try high-waisted pants. But instead, they tried prohibition. So what was the rationale behind this in all of these places? It depends on where you're at. So each country kind of has a different perspective. If you have more communists, it's more of a worker movement kind of thing. If you're in a war, it's more we've got to, obviously, we're using industrial alcohol for fuels and different supplies. So we don't want to put that toward just general consumption. If you're in the U.S., there's like a weird, and so I was talking with Kat about this a little bit earlier. Like some of it, I get like the prohibitionists who are like, I would like husbands to stop beating their wives. If they stop drinking alcohol, we think this will help. At the time, there's not really any recourse for women. I, I get it. Um, obviously, not super effective, but not ineffective, right? 70% of people drank a lot less during Prohibition. I mean, from the 1820s, the numbers in the U.S. per citizen, per capita, was really high. Oh, yeah. Americans drank three times the amount of liquor of a European at the time in, like, the 1830s. And that continues. It doesn't, like, taper off. So like, you have people drinking a lot of booze, and it's not going, going great for anybody. So, Prohibition, we have worker movements, we have a lot of things happening politically. What does that mean for what? Jen. Jen is in a weird place, right? Okay. So Jen is still kind of in the collective of something that's juniper flavored. So you have suppliers shipping over from Europe. Obviously, those shipments get cut off. You've also got, after the Civil War and during the Civil War, the North switched a lot of its distilleries over to making industrial alcohol and different like types of fuels for like a while, like leading up to World War One. So in the South, you've got people already kind of drinking whiskey. They've US been making South. that stuff at home for a while. Yes. U.S. South, yeah. And you have like rum being imported. Rum like is on a downward spiral <laughs> for a while until the 1920s. So the gin that you're getting in the U.S., if you can get it imported, delish probably mm-hmm. pretty great should come from the uk if you're getting it just reworked this is horrifying stuff like it so is basically like this 1720s well. in the uk same quality mm-hmm. actually okay. probably worse because mm-hmm. u.s government was saying it was okay to poison you what, what was in it so the industrial alcohol the government allowed that to continue to be made right we need that for a lot of different things hospitals different like mechanical engineering type things, whatever, blah, blah. The government basically said, this cannot get to the consumer. You can put whatever you need in it to make it poisonous because they shouldn't be drinking it in the first place. So they put quinine in it, like at a high, high rate, like to where it'd be undrinkable, right? They put that in there. They put, I think, benzene, methyl Mm -hmm. alcohol. This stuff is deadly, People don't, nobody is going to an industrial alcohol manufacturer, a distiller, and be like, hey, can you give me two gallons of this to take home? That's right. not how this is happening. Like, right. people get this from a bootlegger who tries to disguise it and say that it's worthwhile. You get two drinks in, you feel terrible. You're like, it's fine. I haven't had a drink forever. You die. 
I know I can't, that cat meow was like exactly yeah it's goners they think no maybe surprise it's Thor meowing who <gasps> of course would have a lot to say about this he's a very sassy cat from the time that the 18th amendment went into effect until it was repealed in 1933 about 10,000 people died far mm-hmm. more than died due to mob violence or yeah. any mafia connections Sure. So I read somewhere that because of like regulations and things, they weren't as strict and as monitored as they are today. There were lots of quote unquote doctors who would prescribe, it said whiskey, but I don't mm-hmm. know if it be anything because whiskey was available at pharmacies. And so they yeah. would provide this, they would prescribe it for any pain or a cough or whatever. So it was this weird like roundabout way. Would that be tainted as well? Uh, probably not as likely because it would come from a pharmacy. It still wouldn't be great, right? It'd probably be Canadian whiskey. So the Canadians provided a lot of whiskey. So yeah, so like pharmacies are like your main source and doctors would sell, sell a prescription. I'm saying for like three bucks. Like, yeah, you and could, then I read too that it was like super shady where you could like buy the prescription if you paid, it was all underground. If you pay this person, they'll pay this person off. Oh, yeah. Well, so there's that. There's the religious exemption, right? So if you're Jewish or Catholic, you can have wine for your ceremonies. So, yeah, so you have that. You've got Ross Love's a Little Craft Project. You could get a kit, a distilling kit from the mafia if you lived in the right neighborhood. Really? And make gin from, yep, make gin from potato skins or yeah. rotten cabbage, anything that ferments like a mofo. Yeah. What separated gin? So obviously now it's a lot of like the ingredients and things, right? So what separated gin from vodka or rum? They they probably weren't including a lot of juniper in the. In the no. So yeah. So white with <laughs> the last the coup de gras would be a little bit of juniper oil added at the very end. Juniper oil, like yeah, what, we could buy that at the grocery store next to the peppermint oil yeah. and the vanilla extract. Yeah. It's an extract, yeah. It's not great. It would just give you the smell of it, really. And some of the taste. But it would taste mostly just like Everclear. Yeah, that's I what was you're... thinking, like, things must have tasted... I don't want to, like, throw any type of alcohol under the bus any right now, but I'm just thinking of, like, dark eyes. I'm <laughs> <laughs> thinking, like, everything tasted like that. But, yeah, so you have, like, yeah, you have all these loopholes. You have people making gin in their house. Yeah, people bringing weird industrial mixes of crap from factories. Something, if you really look at it, obviously nothing is like the Great Gatsby in any way, except for maybe champagne, right? He, t- he if you watch the movie, like he toasts with champagne, that is a con- like contained bottle of something, right? You could ha- kind of know what's in it-ish, but you also you have to be super rich to buy it. I think that would probably be your safest alcohol. When you think of the 1920s, that's what you think of, right? Of like the dresses and men mm-hmm. in suits and like these glamorous parties that went until 4 a.m. or whatever. But now this makes so much sense in my brain too about like, Hannah, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like cocktails really started to become more of a thing around this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's probably because when you throw citrus and herbs and some sugar in there, it makes it taste a lot better. Yeah. No. So like American cocktail culture had been a thing for a while because we didn't have a refined distilling system. Like 
the friend the French have been protecting cognac and wine since the 1700s. Like they've had like rules in place. America was like, Meh. the U.S. Was like, man, I don't give a So that's when cocktails become a thing. So you see, when prohibition starts, also all these bartenders leave. So the the U.S. bartenders, a bunch of them go to Cuba. They take over the Cuban bar scene. If you want to read up about that, I'll have a I'll note that article on our references. It's crazy. They get kicked out later in the 30s. It's hilarious. It's kind of awesome. They also go to London and to Paris. So you have the American bar at the Savoy, voted world's best bar. It's actually tiny if you look at a photo of it. And then you have Harry's New York bar in Paris. And these are like the hubs of the American cocktail experience. Savoy is opened in 1889. The American bar becomes popular in the 1920s because it has good cocktails. And that's where the white lady is supposedly invented. Yeah, Harry Craddock, he's the bartender there. He was born in England. He comes to the U.S. for bartending, training, whatever, maybe better life. Maybe he had no idea he wanted to be a bartender. Goes back and heads up their bartending team. Then you have Harry McElhoney. I mispronounced that, I think. He's Scottish. Also from New York, though. Comes back. And then he sets up Harry's New York bar. And... Both of them, like, so Harry's New York Bar is a home of the Bloody Mary, the French 75s, the Monkey Gland. Oh, man, who doesn't love the French 75? So the New York Bar was in Paris? Yes. Run by Scott. Okay. That actually sounds so accurate, so. But yeah, like, that's where, like, F. Scott Fitzgerald hangs out, Cole Porter, Dorothy Parker, all the lost generation are, like, basically hopping between these bars that have American cocktails, but they're actually made with pretty good booze. Which is funny, right? Like, you don't really need to do a great cocktail. You could get pretty solid scotch there. Yeah. So, Hannah, is that why? What's the number? What was the amount, the ounces of gin that F. Scott Fitzgerald drank every morning for breakfast? It was a lot. I don't know. But I did look up a thing that said, like, his amount, the amount of money he paid at Harry's New York Bar on, like, a daily basis could sometimes, it could be, like, $500. Yeah, that's why he was... Broke. Thousands of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Like he'd come into money and his wife was wealthy, but like he literally spent so much money on booze at a time when that's all you had to do. Like he was just like, I'm just going to socialize and be at the bar. I'm going to write at the bar. I live my whole life here. We know people like this. Of course he drank great gin. He's so beautiful. Which just like aligns with everything, right? Where it's like, it on the surface, it's so... I know I keep using this word, but it's so sexy and it's so glamorous and it's so sparkly and pretty, right? Yeah. And then when you go deeper, it's like, girl, he was an alcoholic. He's a troubling and problematic person. Yeah. yeah. Who created yeah. an image that we still like, which is why people still love in the 1920s. So Europe's getting the best American bartenders. And by American bartenders, I mean immigrants who kick, are kicking A and taking names and then coming back to Europe and bringing their skills. In the US, obviously, it's a mess. We've got crazy amounts of bad booze running around canadian whiskey is a thing this is a question for current texas how many cases of canadian whiskey are consumed in texas i think i think in a year is my love texas things how many cases in how many cases state in a year yes, yes. Um, we ask hard math on this podcast i don't really know it's got to be in the millions i'm gonna say Four million. Okay, you overshot it a little bit. It's like 1.5, which is still higher than it is in many provinces of Canada. <laughs> Basically, yeah, like 
the U.S. still drinks Canadian whiskey. But at the time, it was flooded with whiskey because a few distillers from Detroit just step over the pond, the pond, I've made it sound like we're going back to the Europe, step over the lake <laughs> and lakes and set up shop literally on the Great Lakes and just send good whiskey back. So that's where we get Duars, Black and White, Bat 69, Canadian Club, obviously, which becomes like a brand in and of itself um, mm-hmm. because American distillers at the time had been like, we need to list the country the stuff is coming from. And so then when they stop listing Canadian, they're like, people are like, I don't know if this is good. I probably shouldn't drink it. Because <laughs> it's, it's from... It's so funny how, like, putting that name on it changes things, too. If it's labeled, like, Irish whiskey or mm-hmm. Canadian or Russian vodka, people are like, well, of course it's great. Look at that credibility. The few times when you, like, buy into this because it's the only thing that makes you feel okay. That leads me to two questions that are different. So one, are they actually Mm -hmm. distilling and producing gin in Canada just because the access to juniper? They're not doing as much because there wasn't really, there wasn't as much of a gin distilling industry in North America in general at the time. Canadians already we're used to having whiskey production happening um, on a limited basis, right? Their, their prohibition had only been for two years. Mm-hmm. So they um, were kind of willing to scale up what they're already doing. And then you had American distillers who literally just became Canadian. They just, yeah. were like, yeah. they took, took apart, some places like took apart a distillery that was in like Michigan and Minnesota sure. and just rebuilt it. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, I was just curious with the influx of people from the UK or citizens of the UK that might have been gin producers, if that was happening. Part of what fueled prohibition in the US was also not just women pushing for it for the the temperance movement. It was also pretty Mm anti-immigrant and in a big way, very anti-German immigrant after World Mm -hmm. War I. So trying to shut down the brewers. They weren't really as concerned about the distilleries. So it's likely, this is just conjecture, that gin distilleries that were smaller kind of might have skated by but we just don't really have as many of a larger scale i'd have to kind of dig into like who's where and what state but so yeah that makes sense that leads me to my second question is what was happening with global distribution of gin or genevieve at the time so genevieve is still going strong um but they you're starting to see it compete with other alcohols right so whiskey whiskey starts to step up rum rum running obviously built on a whole lot of death that doesn't make sense but i know it's huge huge yeah rum becomes huge business in the 1920s and doesn't really fade peters out in the 1880s it comes full force back in the 1920s but in the 20s i know that because i even researched it after i read the book water for elephants they had some like jank rum come in and go around and it was paralyzing people. And they even had a term for it because the stuff people were putting in their bodies was just, as you said earlier, just rancid. It's poison. Anybody who's bringing in supplies of booze, like there's no way to check it right now, right? There's not like a inspector who's like taking a little like pipe head of it run it through a system and be like, oh yeah, that's only 10% poison. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there is a lot of rum that is potable. So that's coming in. Vodka also, vodka from Russia was con- continually exported 
even with prohibition, like it could be I produced, see. it just couldn't be consumed okay. by people. So vodka is yeah. actually really big in the U.S. up until 1960s, maybe. It's still the number one liquor import, right? By a large yeah. amount, if I'm remembering yeah. the numbers correctly. Yeah, vodka still like swamps everybody else. So it isn't until 1960s actually when whiskey distillers get back together, like get it in line, right? So many of them have closed. You don't have smaller batch groups. Maker's Mark becomes a big thing in the 60s because they do the whole little wax dipped top that they do. It's very hands-on. That kind of gets people to think like, oh, this is special. Not, oh, this is what my grandpa drinks. That's a lot of the booze. And then you don't see obviously like niche and craft stuff in gin distilling until like the 80s, 90s. Ross, when do you think Bombay Sapphire was launched? 80s. 1986. Yeah. It's a very 80s design and flavor profile. I, I, I like Bombay Sapphire, so I say that non-judgmentally. <laughs> All the stuff that's like getting launched at this time like kind of fits the flavor profile that Americans have, been, have gotten used to, which is a cocktail one, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want your gin that's super juniper super herbally because you're going to mix it with other stuff, and it's hard to figure that out. So flipping it back to 1920s, thank you for answering my question. Yes. What else? What else? What else do you guys want to know? I mean, basically Europe's doing fine. They kind of think that we're a little bit dumb for yeah. continuing prohibition for as long as we do. Wow. Um, Are there still gin palaces in the UK at this time? Were there can ever I any? tell you how in love I am with the term gin palace? Because when I first heard it, I thought of like Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory when that Tim Burton directed, I thought of the Chocolate Palace. <laughs> so oh, I like, I like picture this like beautiful palace made of like gin bottles and especially like Tanqueray and Bombay because they're pretty, right? So yeah, I just had the most beautiful picture in my head. Yeah. So gin palaces are kind of fading a little bit. Um, there's still some. And then towards like the early part of the 1920s, they're probably getting a redo. They're probably getting remade. But there's tons of bars. There's tons of people drinking gin. So you would have maybe, they'd probably be more Art Nouveau than sure. they had been in the past. A little bit sure. less tacky. Still kind of tacky, like yeah. all of us. So yeah, so that's, I, I feel like we've kind of got an idea of like, what was up with the U.S., kind of how we get to where we are today with booze. There you go. There's our take of Jen in the 1920s. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen in and join us on this Jen journey. And shout out to Kat for being our special guest and her love of all things 1920 related. Also, if you have not checked it out, go ahead and listen to our episode of Jen in the 1920s and the 1820s. And if you just want some more general silliness, feel free to check us out on our Instagram at Jen underscore and underscore. Thank you. Take care. Be safe. And cheers. Cheers.